The data is not enough without telling a story about it. And I've learned that over the years working in communities where we would show them all the data and it wouldn't change anybody's mind. But you tell a story around that data and you reach people emotionally and you tell it visually and all of a sudden they think about it differently. And so data is necessary but not sufficient. Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. I'm Krista Crum, Analyst Relations Lead at Esri, and I'll be your host for today. You just heard Tom Fisher, author and professor of the Minnesota Design Center, explain the powerful combination of data, analytics, and visualization in designing solutions. Today's leading executives and civic leaders are investing in data and technologies to tackle complex business and societal problems. Here, Esri CMO Mariana Cantor explore how design thinking is transforming industries. Tom, thank you so much for joining us here today. Happy to be here. I want to start by acknowledging that there is a dizzying wealth of compelling ideas in your recently published book, Designing Our Way to a Better World. There's definitely an urgency in your book. You write, never has one species, ours, so dominated the planet, and yet, at the very moment when we seem unstoppable and invincible, humanity is facing new threats. Humanity has started to careen rapidly towards some sort of a breaking point. Well, I think the paradox that we're in right now is at the very moment that we're probably the most powerful species on the planet, we're also the most vulnerable. So think about our species. We require a lot of other species to feed us, to clothe us, to, to have medicines for us, right? So we're very dependent on more species than any other species on the planet, right? And yet we're doing things through climate change, through extinction events, to eradicate the very species that we depend on. This is probably most uh, familiar to people when they talk about the potential losing the bee population. We lose the bee population, we lose a huge part of our food system, right? And so we are incredibly vulnerable. And I think there's not a recognition of that because we're also so powerful. And this is part of a larger bit of work I've been doing in recent years that's been looking at fracture critical systems. The human population itself is a fracture critical system right now, which is a kind of system that is vulnerable to fairly rapid collapse. And I also argue in the book that we've had a Ponzi scheme with the planet. Um, and as we know from Bernard Madoff, Ponzi schemes work by keeping the people at the top of the pyramid enriched by continually expanding it until you run off the planet and then the Ponzi scheme collapses, right? So Bernard Madoff did that economically and his Ponzi scheme collapsed over a weekend and he's now in prison because they always collapse. Well, the problem is, is that I believe we've had a Ponzi scheme with the planet. Humans have had a Ponzi scheme with the planet. We are off the planet. It takes about one and a half planets to meet our current needs, which means we're off the base, and now what we're doing is we're borrowing heavily from the future. At the same time, I know that all sounds very pessimistic, but I'm also quite optimistic if we can understand our situation, because we essentially designed our way into this situation, and we can design our way out of it again if we recognize what's going on. Can you define design thinking? Well, design thinking is interesting because it is something fundamental to being human. We design our environments. We're designing the planet, making decisions that have global implications. And so humans are born 
with this ability to imagine possible futures. So one way to think about design thinking, it's, a, it's sort of asking the question, well, what if? It's, it's a future-oriented way of seeing a possibility. So all inventors are really design thinkers. You know, Edison was a design thinker, imagining a light bulb, or you know, Steve Jobs imagining the smartphone. They're all using this capacity in the human brain to imagine something that doesn't yet exist and um, you know, sort of figuring out what are the concrete steps I can take to achieve that. You're constantly saying, well, what if I could imagine some software that could do this or could, could do that, right? You iterate. You, you sort of work out the bugs. You, you're critiquing it. Oh, this could be better. This doesn't work. And so you do it again and again and again before you ever launch the product or write the law or whatever it is you're doing. And too, so often, too often, people don't understand that iterative critical process that is central to uh, good design. And so they have an idea and they launch something and it's, you know, a disaster. This is actually less common in the private sector because if you put the first car idea you had out there and a lot of, killed a lot of people, you go out of business, right? So businesses have actually been designing products and services pretty well just because of the discipline of the marketplace. What I'm more concerned about is the public sector. They say, well, there's a problem, we're gonna write a law to solve that problem. Well, they don't do any kind of iteration, they don't do any critique, it gets launched on the public and has all kinds of unintended consequences, right? And then, well, they write another law to deal with those which have further unintended consequences. And so, you know, part of this is to just help people realize that there's a, there's a method to design, that it produces better results when you do it. You talk about this third industrial revolution, the first being the uh, one that took place in the 19th century around the steam engine, the second being the 20th century with mass production. Um, so what's happening now with this third uh, industrial revolution has to do with digital technology. What is it about our time now that is different from the previous so-called revolution. So on one hand, I think that this is really a post-industrial era in some sense in that it is taking us back to where we as a species spent most of our history, which was not carrying lots of stuff, not having lots of things, and not even living in permanent places that we own, but accessing what we need when we need it and only paying for that when we uh, have used it. So that is one part of this, which is returning us to an older way of being. But there's also another piece, which is we're in a period of rapid automation of everything that is uh, repetitive or dangerous. There's been research that's been done actually at Oxford University, but is happening now in universities around the world, looking at the rapid automation of not only blue-collar jobs, which has been going on for a long time, but a lot of white-collar jobs, too. I mean, accounting and uh, uh, law. I mean, there are a lot of aspects of uh, white-collar jobs that are also repetitive that are being eliminated because basically they can be turned into algorithms and done more effectively by computing. When I talk about autonomous vehicles, one reason that we're automating driving is driving is one of the most dangerous and repetitive things we do. And so we're rapidly automating that. And what's interesting to me, I've been focused on, well, what's left? 
after we've automated all of the things that are boring, repetitive, or dangerous for humans, right? And what we're actually left with is an economy that is very much like the pre-industrial economy. I call them the seven C's uh, in terms of the categories of jobs that are going to be left. So computing is going to be clearly one huge area of work. There's going to be a vast workforce that is going to be engaged in the automation process itself, developing the algorithms that are going to be doing a lot of this work. But the other six C's are interesting to me too because they're creative jobs, they're craft jobs, they're communications jobs, they're uh, community jobs, and they're caring jobs. And those are the jobs that computers don't do well. Those are jobs that are about human interaction. Those are jobs about imagining some possible future that doesn't exist, all which is what creative people do. And, but what they also are the jobs that existed before the first industrial revolution. And so one way to think about the fourth or third or fourth industrial revolution is we're actually coming out the tail end of the industrial revolutions as a period of time in human history. And we are returning not only to a more nomadic way of being, a more mobile way of being, but we're also returning to the things that humans are really good at. And we are dispensing with the things that we're not good at. We don't like to do boring or dangerous work. I don't know if we've totally understood how different life will be at the end of this century than it is now um, because of the effect of computing and the digital revolution on how we're living our daily lives. What, what you're saying, as I understand it, is that we don't own anything necessarily, mm -hmm. uh, and yet our uh, standard of living is better. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, I suspect it has to do with the new business models mm -hmm. that are out there with companies like Uber and Airbnb and Lyft and so on. So how do you see that evolving? Well, I've learned a lot by working on the autonomous vehicle uh, movement that's happening in the car industry. So the way Ford and GM and actually Google and some companies that aren't car companies are envisioning this is that um, we will have mobility service contracts with them. They will make cars and continue to own the cars as a fleet that we call up whatever car we need. If you need a pickup truck, they'll deliver a pickup truck. You need a car with two car seats, they deliver the car with two car seats, right? Um, it greatly reduces the cost of transportation for us because we don't have to own and operate a car. And it also greatly actually, ironically, is much more profitable for those companies. Uh, as somebody I know from Ford said, instead of trying to convince us to buy a Ford car every few years, when you're a service company, you're constantly involved with your customers. And you know, you're interacting with them all the time. You're not just, it's not a one-time deal. And so I think that we're going to see a lot of goods manufacturers becoming service providers where they will continue to have the goods and then we will pay for their use. So that's a completely different relationship of, of company to customer. Life as a service. Life as a service, <laughs> right. Returning to the, I believe there were seven C's, are you at all concerned <clears throat> that somehow we'll atrophy one of, some of our capabilities to innovate? Well, actually, I think that what this does is it empowers us to innovate in that we're getting rid of the boring jobs. We're getting rid of the jobs that nobody really wants to do, right? And we're getting rid of the dangerous jobs that we'd rather machine do it. 
And what that leaves for us are the jobs that are all about innovation. Um, but I mean, it changes the way we might think about innovation. We've tended to imagine it as only about technology, when I actually think that the real innovations in the future are going to be, how do we make sure that technology is serving our needs, right? So technology is always a means, it's not an end, right? Mm -hmm. What does the user need, rather than become obsessed about the technology itself? You say that there are no universal solutions to problems, and context and scale matter. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that. What you learn in design uh, from our history is that in the 20th century, designers thought there was like a universal solution to human shelter, that we will build concrete or glass box buildings everywhere in the world and we'll put everybody in it and everyone will be happy, right? Well, that was a disaster, right? Because climates vary, cultures differ. Um, and one of the lessons the design community learned in the 20th century is that there are no universal solutions, that, that, that context, climate, and culture matter uh, a lot. As a result of learning those lessons, I'm very skeptical of any universal solution. We suffered in the 20th century through a period where we thought, you know, there was one single answer to everything, right? And that is not how ecosystems work. I think that one of the other lessons that humans are learning and need to learn in this century is that we're an animal like any, like all the other animals, and we're in ecosystems like all those other animals that we share this planet with. And ecosystems exist in small patches. They don't exist universally. Uh, and a, a healthy ecosystem has some patches that are declining and others that are thriving and others that are emerging. And we have to recognize that that is true for the human ecosystem as well. And so, you know, to me, why the future is so spatially grounded and determined is to understand that human knowledge, human culture, human activities differ profoundly from one place to the next. That's the context, the spatial component yeah. of it. And you say that Einstein and Freud, who are clearly some of the most leading thinkers of the 20th century, both spatial thinkers, which mm -hmm. helped them make conceptual connections that contributed to their historic discoveries. What is that spatial thinking, and can the rest of us learn it? Yeah, Einstein, for example, would do thought experiments, spatial thought experiments. Uh, he was fascinated by elevators, and he realized that if you were in an elevator with no windows and the door was closed, and you were going at a certain rate, at the rate that gravity was pulling you down, but you were accelerating up at that same speed, that you wouldn't know whether you were stationary on the ground or whether you were accelerating. So with that ex thought experiment of the elevator, he realized that gravity and acceleration are the same thing. And then he did this really brilliant little thought experiment. He imagined that there was a little hole in the elevator and a bright light that was shining. Well, if you were accelerating really fast, the light would, would actually fall on the other side of the elevator a little bit down from where it started because you were moving up, right? So and then bend. Yeah. It would bend. Yeah. And then he goes, well, if acceleration bends light, then gravity has to bend light too because they're the same thing. And, and sure enough, it took years to do experiments to show that you know light does bend around planets and... And, and so, and then when they came to his office in Princeton and said, you know, we, we just proved that, he said, well, of course, it, it, it had to be true, right? 
And, and so to me, they were incredibly creative thinkers and they were spatial thinkers. And I've always believed that that is what um, is going to help be part of the innovations of the future is to be creative spatial thinkers. And I think that that's where the future economy is going toward creative spatial thinkers. So Esri, of course, is a technology company, uh, and I want to ask you about the role of data and data technologies in particular in present and future. Data is necessary but not sufficient. What story are you going to tell about the data, right? And uh, I find that that's what led me, one of the reasons that led me to geodesign, which is that geodesign in a way is kind of telling a future story about the data. So it's not only here's what exists, but here's what could be. I have found working in communities that, that people want hope. They want to know about what lies ahead in the future. A lot of people are afraid of the future, and so one of the roles of geodesign is to help people not be afraid of the future because it's coming whether we want it or not. And so how do we envision that future, get ready for it, tell a story about the data in terms of where it's, it's leading us? What are the economic benefits of adopting a geodesign approach? Well, I think geodesign helps us uh, recognize opportunities that are sometimes right in front of us that we're not recognizing uh, by older ways of thinking. So, for, so for example, uh, the transition that the car companies are going through as they think about shared mobility services um, as their provision model in the future, took a reframing of what who they were. They realized they weren't car companies, they were mobility providers. And once you realize you're a mobility provider, you realize you can offer a lot of services to people other than just selling them a car. For example, some of the big retailers are envisioning a future where they know with such precision what we all order online that they're envisioning that instead of having big box stores that we drive to to buy stuff, that they will know pretty much what we're going to order online. They're going to have it available on autonomous vehicles that can deliver it to our door faster than we could drive to the store. And think about the savings. They don't have to have all of these big box stores. And I think that is the kind of uh, transformation that is going to happen in virtually every industry, where they use design thinking to reframe the industry to say, well, maybe we're not in the widget making business. Maybe we're in the the business of providing our customers what they get from our widgets, right? And so the economic benefits of that kind of reframing as a way to understand the, the spatial dynamics of this uh, new business model um, is really, to me, where a lot of economic growth is going to happen in the future. Do you think business schools should embrace geospatial education? Uh, it's interesting. You know, a lot of business schools are quite interested in design thinking. I think they realize that that is a a method to innovate and and the speed with which innovation is needs to occur is is increasing but i don't think yet enough business schools recognize that one of the profound innovations that's happening is that the whole economy is becoming this nomadic uh, spatially grounded mobile economy 
And uh, so I co-teach a class on global venture design with colleagues, you know, from public policy in the business school. And the, most of our students are business students. And again, that's where this millennial generation is completely different from the people who are still in power. I mean, the, my students are envisioning um, uh, new uh, businesses in incredibly diverse places. So, for example, uh, we do uh, a business development in India, Nicaragua, and Uganda. The team that worked last year in Uganda realized that there are no silos for the farmers in Uganda, and so they have to sell their grains as soon as it's harvested when the price is lowest. And if they had silos to store their grains, they could wait until the price went higher and they could sell their grains at a higher price and improve their standard of living. So they, our students developed a company that basically uses local labor to make micro silos for each community for the farmers to store their grains. And this was a bunch of college students who pitched this to a venture fund and you know, are launching businesses like this. So this millennial generation, they want to solve real problems. They don't want to make their way up some big corporate hierarchy. They want to start businesses right out of the chute, right out of graduation. And, uh, and they'll do it globally, although they're also very locally grounded in terms of the nature of the problems. And I think that's the future of business. I think it isn't about starting some enormous corporation or, or working your way up through a hierarchy. I think the future is, is going to be incredibly entrepreneurial, innovation-oriented, and addressing the needs of the whole human population, including you know, farmers in Uganda. Tom, thank you so much for a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of War podcast. And thanks to Tom Fisher for explaining how technology, data, and design thinking can help improve both business and government. To learn more, download our free eBooks, Putting AI and Location Intelligence to Work at esri.com forward slash AI, Making Sense of Digital Transformation at esri.com forward slash where, and making the most of the Internet of Things at esri.com forward slash IOT.